Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is it. The time has come. Saturday night's all right for fighting. Get in the ring and go the distance with Fight Night with Gareth A. Davies. You're better than that. On Talk Sport. Hello, welcome to another Fight Night podcast for Talk Sport. I'm Gareth A. Davis. Joining me this week is Spencer Oliver, the former boxer. We had a packed show as ever. We were first joined in the studio for, for an hour by Tony Sims. Uh, former trainer of Anthony Joshua, Ricky Burns, and others, for a fantastic look back on his career. We discussed women's boxing following the historic fight between Terry Harper and Natasha Jonas that ended controversially on Matchroom Square Garden, fight camp number two from Eddie Hearn at Brentwood. It was indeed a battle of Brentwood, but it ended in a split draw. In the final hour, we were joined by Shakan Pitters, the light heavyweight boxer, and also Derek Asaze, the middleweight fighter. All that and more coming up now. So first off on the show, Tony Sims was in the studio with myself and Spencer. He began by telling us how he got into the sport, what Anthony Joshua was like behind the scenes. It was a fantastic hour in the studio with the normally private Mr. Sims. Have a listen to this. Yeah, firstly, going into the bubble uh, is a strange experience in, its, in itself because you're in like, uh, well, he's eyed out like a wing of the hotel mm. and there's a little downstairs area um, where the opponent's and like all the fighters just mingle or mix in with each other and the trainers. So it's really, really strange because <laughs> normally you don't really see your opponent till the weigh-in and um, and then you don't see him till the fight. But um, sort of everyone's walking around and saying hello to each other and there's not a bad... Well, there weren't the week we was in there, weren't a bad atmosphere in there. And um, Well, that's good, isn't it? In a, in a certain way. It's you know? fantastic. And that's what boxing's about it's as well. It's a sport. Yeah, it's a sport. Um we hear a lot of pre-fight uh, stuff before the fight, you know, and then afterwards you see the boxers cuddle and shake hands. But before before these fights, people were saying hello to each other and shaking hands already. So it was a little bit strange in that respect. But, um, yeah, going into the uh, fight camp, obviously, um, you know, the offices there. I'm in the offices all the time, matchroom offices. And uh, to be truthful, walking into there, 
you just couldn't see us at offices. It was like a proper arena. The changing rooms was amazing. It was like a arena changing rooms. You know, everything about it, as you say, the walkout, the fireworks that he'd done, it's just an amazing scene. You just can't explain how good it was. Look, let me just present you a little bit more before we... Let's go back before we go on. You worked with Anthony Joshua when he first came on the professional scene after he'd won the Super Heavyweight Olympic gold medal in London. You worked with Darren Barker for him to get his world middleweight title on that memorable night in America. You worked with Conor Benn, Ricky Burns, the only Scottish three-weight world champion. Felix Cash, who fights next weekend. Ted Cheeseman, we'll talk about later, who was amazing last week in a brilliant fight. The up-and-coming Joe Cordina. Um, O'Hara Davis, Kevin Mitchell, John Ryder. It goes on. Martin Joseph Ward. The, the list goes on. How did you get started in all of this? Um, well, from a child. I boxed as a child because um, I lived in Bethnal Green, so... There was so it's a national sport of Bethnal Green, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. There was like a, there's a pub on every corner in Bethnal Green and there's also a boxing club on every corner in Bethnal Green. So you ain't got much choice, really. You go to one of the clubs and, um, you know, I had quite a lot of fights back. Well, in them days, it was about 70-odd fights as a, as a junior and uh, as a senior. And then, um, obviously, I... I uh, I, I walked away from boxing. I think I was about 21, 22 when I walked away from boxing and never really give it another thought. And um, got into my 30s. And um, funny enough, it was uh, Nigel Benn's manager, Peter DeFratis at the time, who um, who I was quite friendly with at that time. I started training just to keep fit, really. I think I was about 30, 31. And... Um, one day, Nigel Ben sparring never turned up in the matchroom gym, funny enough, in Romford. And uh, I ended up sparring with Nigel Ben for his fight with uh, Dan Sherry. And uh, that's how I got to know Nigel really well. And how did it go, that spar? Uh, put it this way, I finished up with, I think, two crack ribs, <laughs> <laughs> two black eyes. I remember, I remember my wife, Karen, saying, what are you doing? What are you doing, but... What Listen, was, he was inexperienced. What was the reason behind it, though? Why, what, you know, why did you do that? Just that fighter's mentality, that, that fighter's instinct? Well, I remember no sparring partners turned up for him that day and I was, like, keeping fit. And uh, I, was wearing a, I was wearing, like, heavyweight, I think, about 12 and a half stone. And uh, he just said, do you want to get in and just do a few rounds? He's got no one, like, the sparring ain't turned up. And I don't know why I said yes, but I said yes. But he ended up... We end up sparring quite a bit, and not just for that fight, for the Sugar Boy Malinga fight as well. And um, so I'd done a couple of fights with him, but um, he was inexperienced, to say the least. And then from there, he had two nephews at the time, Michael and Paul Bowen, who was, uh, they was only young teenagers at the time. Uh, and um, Kevin Saunders was then training uh, Nigel and the two nephews. Anyway, when Nigel um, retired, Kevin Saunders obviously lived in Peterborough and he said, you want to look after the two nephews? So that's that's how I accidentally really got into it. He had a gym in his back garden, didn't he? I think. Who, Kevin? Saunders, yeah, Saunders had a gym in his I back garden. I don't know, because this was all being at the matchroom yeah. gym mm. in Romford. Mm. This was yeah. all happening, do you know Yeah, I, mean? I remember it was a great little gym down there, fantastic yeah. stable. I used to train down there myself, actually. Yeah. But then Bowen brothers, they were both heavy-handed as well. That must run in the family. They were good fighters, you know, but they only had about... T 10 or 12 fights both of them and then they sort of walked away from the sport but 
but from there, then I went on and just kept training fighters from there, really. Mm. It just it just renewed your appetite and your love for the sport, which presumably that period you're talking about in Bethnal Green would have been the 70s, no? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then like, by the by the time the early 80s came, you'd kind of lost interest in it then, really. Of course, yeah, because you, like, you get a job and, you know, I had a little baby at the time and, you, you know, your life takes on a different path. So you go from amateur boxer and, like, in them days, you never got... If you were turning professional, there weren't such thing as sponsorship deals. So mm. I had quite an odd job at the time in Billingsgate Fish Market. I was a porter there. So it was a bit impossible to do both because I had to start at four in the morning and you couldn't really get your road working, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd, you'd be finished in, say, midday. It was an early finish. Then I'd be going straight to the gym and it was just a bit hard work. So my job took over from boxing at that time, you know, because I had to provide... Can I ask a question going back to that Nigel Benn sparring? Was Nigel Benn as spiteful in sparring as he was in competition? I, I don't know. I don't think he was spiteful as such that he would uh, try and steamroll you. But what he obviously what he had, he had um, he had power that you know he only had to touch you and you'd feel the power shudder through you. And um, you know it was he was unnatural really that sort of power that he had. So. Sparring with him, you know, you, you'd have to be careful all the time, make sure you're moving all the time. Because he, he he used to bring in like three or four different sparring partners. So you'd get in for, you might get in for one, out for one, in for one, out for one like that. So he was already, he always had a fresh sparring partner. Now entering the arena, the Bermondsey Banger, the big cheese cheeseman! Oh, big shots going in from the pair of them. Right hand from Eggington. Back comes Cheeseman. Fabulous stuff here at Fight Camp. Unbelievable action here. Eggington. Oh, Cheese is about to go. And Eggington finds the shots, but Cheeseman cracks one back at him. How are these two still standing, man? I said that's life. Super welterweight champion Ted, the big cheese cheeseman. Tony Sims, Ted Cheeseman's trainer, was absolutely impassive and emotionless listening to that. Why, <laughs> Mr. Sims? Why? <laughs> Been there, seen it, done it. <laughs> it was only a week ago. Yeah. It was only a week ago. Yeah. I was pleased for the kids. You were, ve- I've not seen you. I, your your grin was pinned from ear to ear after he won that night. I was pleased for him, not just on a professional level, but on a personal level. Obviously, everyone knows the struggles he's been through. And I was, ple- I was pleased because he's pulled his whole life around in full circle. And so to see that, see a kid do that, a young kid do that, is, is a tremendous feat. Mm. And you know, and um, you know, as we all know, he still goes to meetings every Friday now because he knows he's an addict. You know, and to, to try and beat that addiction, to, to, to actually be involved in the addiction that he's he's trying to beat, and to be on a professional level, mm. to go and put a fight of his life like that after coming off of two fights that he. I thought he won both fights. His last two fights and never got the decision, but you still got to have in your in your mind a strong mentality to go into a fight like that and put on the fight of your life. 
Yeah, people that don't know what Cheeseman had been through in the, in the, in the previous 12, 12 months was incredible. He had a gambling addiction. Um, he'd lost two of his last three fights and, and drew one. Um, Kieran Con, um, Sergio Garcia for the European title. Um, but he was, he was talking about you know having a really bad addiction still then. He wasn't focused on his training, blew all his money before. Then he had a draw with Conway, which I thought was he was unlucky to get that not to get that one. And Scott uh, Scott Fitzgerald as well was he won that fight? Uh, he won that yeah. fight. It's very di- so his career was his career was on the line really for this fight, wasn't it? Like he said, he was going to walk away from the sport. He told me just a couple of days before he done the podcast, he said if I if, you know if I lose, I could I might have to walk away from the sport. This is what it means for me. So it was a tough fight. And he got the decision, and he should have got the decision because he won by three or four rounds. But it was another real tough fight and, and, and a contender for fight of the year, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, like you say there, on paper, he, he would have probably had to walk away from the sport. You mm. know, that would have been, if he had lost that fight, maybe another close decision fight, that would have been four fights without a win. Where would he have gone from there, especially being signed to match him as well? Mm. You know, there would have been nowhere for him to go. So he's literally fighting for his life. And at the same time, trying to beat an addiction. So, you know, what what was going through his mind, he, he's got such a strong mentality that he put tunnel vision on, you know, and he obviously he went for broke. And, you know, he always knew the fight he was walking into there was going to be an hard fight, you know, on, on a British domestic level. Sam Egerton's an hard fight for anybody. And, um, you know, I thought he put the performance of his life in. Mm. And that's why I was so pleased for the kid. You know, he's a young boy. He's just turned 24. He's a young kid with a lot of struggles that he's done. He's, he's spent all the money he's got, you know, on gambling, you know, and he's had a little baby in the last year and, um, you know, won that fight and put himself back on the top of the domestic scene. It's funny, you know, Tony, because I did feel very emotional when he won that night. I did send him some messages because mm. uh, Ted had come in here with his girlfriend, pregnant, she sat in the studio that night. I think she was about five or six months pregnant at that time. But you told me, and I'd love you to tell it, as Spence just mentioned, this extraordinary moment when you were training with him and John Ryder. And as you say, Ted's 24. You, he, and John Ryder are training in America. And Ted tells you he's got to go home. Yeah, we was um, in, a, in a training camp in Florida. Um, and... John was sharing the room with him and uh, the next morning um, Ted come into my room and said, listen, I've got to go home, I've got a problem and, you know, at home and I've got to get the next flight home. But we was in the middle of sparring at the Fifth Street gym and, you know, we spent a lot of money going over to Florida to get to get up and running. I think he, he, they weren't far, that far off of fighting. And uh, I, obviously I said, well, if you've got a personal problem, you you know, you're going to have to go home, you know. And he, he went straight away to the airport and went home. And I remember John Ryder saying to me, Tone, he, he ain't been asleep all night, uh, Ted, you know. He said, I looked it across, across from him. They were obviously sharing two single beds. He said, I looked across from him at nine o'clock at night and he was on his phone. He said, and I woke up at four in the morning to go to the toilet and he was still on the phone. And then obviously in the morning when he's coming to you, he's still on the phone. He said, but I don't know what's going on. He must have a massive problem. But obviously we didn't know mm. that what he was doing was he was gambling on the phone. He was, he he was playing doing, the roulette. He was playing the roulette. And I knew that he sold an house. He inherited an house. And he sold the, they sold the house and he got a um, hundred grand profit of the house. And he spent that hundred grand on that phone that night, a whole lot. Mm, He's he, done the whole lot on he, the roulette. 
told me that story. He told yeah. me the other week. He said that he'd blown the whole hundred grand. He said, so yeah. obviously my head was not in boxing. Although I had these fights coming up, I was getting these opportunities. My head was elsewhere because I had a massive problem. Like, you know, And he told us the whole story about breaking down in front of you guys and yeah. saying that he needs help. It's an amazing turnaround. It really is. I think that was what was so emotional about the other night with Ted going on and winning that fight because it was all on the line. But he's a lovely guy. There's an, this is another role that the trainer plays because you are mentor, you are coach, you are philosopher, you are confidant. But you're also a father figure to them as well. And and I know that you've played that role with him in the intervening year, getting him to the Tony Adams clinic and all these mm. kind of things. Is is that very important that you do take that on? Or is that just something that's in you? Well, it's just something that's in... Like, if someone's asking me for help, whoever that may be, then you're obviously going to reach around out and help somebody, you know, and he was in desperate need for help. Like we were saying, the Sergio Garcia fight... That's when it come out. That's when he. That's when he broke down crying and told me what was going on. To be honest, I didn't have one clue, not mm. one clue what he was doing. But when he told me what had gone on, I mean, every fight he was boxing, he was owing the money. So basically, every fight he was having, he was fighting for nothing. And you've got to have Incredible. some sort of, you got to have some sort of mentality, Spence, to get in mm. the ring. Mm and box for nothing, 12 rounds for yeah. nothing. Yeah. You know, in the Sergio Garcia fight, he said to me, before the fight at the weigh-in, he brought 12,000 pounds of ticket money to the weigh-in. He left the weigh-in. He walked across the road. He was going to get something to eat, and there was a bookmaker's next door to where he was getting something to eat, and he walked in the bookmaker's, and he stood in there till 7 o'clock at night and spent the old 12 grand of matching ticket money. So obviously after the Sergio Garcia fight, he never had one penny, he never had my money, he never had Charlie's manager's money, he never had the ticket money. So that's when I said to him, listen, it's money, like we'll get it sorted, my money and Charlie's money can come another time. I paid match from the ticket money and um, and then obviously a friend of ours, Bryn, we got him into the, uh, the Tony Adams sporting chance and that's where it all started for him. And obviously when he come out of there, um, he's kept up his weekly meetings, you know, and at the moment he hasn't had a bet now since that day, since that Sergio mm. Garcia day. A boxing trainer um, takes on a big role. like It's like a father, fig father figure for a fighter, isn't it? It's like it gets that intimate, it's that personal. You're with the kid, you're the first phone call in the morning and the last phone call at night and you're with him all day, training with him. So you get you get wrapped up in it and you do act like a father figure, don't you? You, you take on that responsibility. Well, it's funny because they come to you obviously with their problems, and it's funny you say that because um, Connor Ben, funny enough, he's a, he's just a young kid, and obviously his father lives in Australia, so it's difficult for him, you know, and he misses his family, and um, he he asked me things, and he, he he rung me up. It was a few weeks ago when his dad went back to Australia. He was actually pining for his dad, and he actually broke down crying pining for his dad he said like I'm missing him you know what I mean which is a natural mm. thing for a young boy mm. and then he said um, I feel bad now doing that because all the other guys in the gym they're all like macho they're not like me like I'll get emotional I went let me tell you something right every single one of them boys in that gym has been emotional in front of me so I never think that you you're the only one you know what I mean because they mm. all break down crying at one stage or the yeah. other to tell you something but it's just that I would never tell you or let you know that everyone else has done that. We're going to go back now, Tony, to talking about Anthony Joshua. Spencer and I are going to grill you for the next five or six minutes. How good 
is Anthony Joshua. How much has he improved and how far has he got to go before he's the complete package? Um, how good is he? He's very good. You know, he's uh, he holds three ver- versions of the heavyweight championship of the world. He, you know, he lost it in a, a, against a massive underdog in Ruiz and he's regained the title and there's not many heavyweights that's done that. So he's um you know he's all he's he's a great fighter he's British representative and uh you know where is he how long far do I think he can go well he's already gone a long way and um he's obviously got a difficult fight in front of him if he fights uh, Tyson Fury because he's another British fighter that's you know a fantastic fighter and you know we're lucky to have two heavyweight champions of the world coming from Britain you know, it's a fight that we all want to see. And But, you know, obviously if he beats Tyson Fury, then he'll go down as one of the all-time greats. It's the biggest fight in our lifetime, isn't mm. it? Isn't exactly. it, gents? Yeah. Exactly. No doubt about it, isn't it? Exactly. And as I say, we're lucky it's from Britain, you know, and um, I think probably the last sort of massive fights, heavyweight uh, unifications are like Ali Frazier and Foreman Ali and, you know, them sort of fights... And now we're talking about two British heavyweights that could unify the whole of the world championships. You're in his corner and he's fighting Tyson Fury. What are you advising him to do through Campen on the night to get the victory? I think Tyson Fury is a very, very difficult man to beat because he can he can fight to any style. You know, we've seen him fight a whole fight in Southpaw. Um, we've seen him be aggressive in the last fight against Denote Wilder. And we've seen him box on the back foot many times. You just don't know what style you're going to get. And uh, that's the difficulty of fighting Tyson Fury. He's got a fantastic jab, six foot nine. His defense is fantastic, you know. But on the other hand, you've got the power, the athletic of Anthony Joshua. Obviously, he can box as well. He's smart in the brain. So this is a big, big fight. It's an even fight. And it's a big British fight as well, which is, you know, so exciting. Yeah, you know, I, I do think it is, it is one of those 50-50 fights. It's about who turns up on the day with the better game plan. And Joshua, we know he's going to have to look for the power shots through the middle against Fury. I think that Fury's only weakness, if he has got one, his only weakness is that he has a tendency to switch off from time to time. And I think that that's where Joshua could jump on him and catch him. I think that that's how, that's how Joshua wins the fight. If he wins the fight, he's got, to, he's got to get him a time when Fury's switched off a bit and Joshua loves to throw those shots straight through the middle. And, that, and that's that's how he wins the fight, if he wins the fight. Does, does Tyson Fury, because he can have this wild, bewildering character, and Anthony Joshua likes things just so, I believe, you know? Yeah. Can, can he get in his head a little bit? And is that a danger in going into this fight? I don't think he'll get into Anthony Joshua's head. I think, you know, Anthony Joshua's quite strong-minded. You've got to realise as well that Anthony Joshua's from the street, so he's fearless. So I don't think Tyson Fury can get in his mind like Tyson Fury got into, say, the Klitschko's mind because they're from a different, mm. uh, they're from different places. But, you know, Anthony Joshua's a, a street guy. He's a tough guy. He's mentally very, very mentally strong. So you know, I think it's going to be down to, you know, who who's ready on the night, whose ability can beat each other's on the night. You know, and it's going to be a very exciting fight. Um, f- final. But I want both of you mm. to answer this. 
do they need two fights to decide or maybe even three fights to decide who's the best of the two of them? I think so. I think that that will, that will definitely happen. I think if we get a first one, it's going to be a classic whatever happens. I think stylistically, it's going to be a great fight. It's not like we're going to see a one-sided blowout like we saw Fury and Wilder last time where it was a complete dominant performance. I think that I think we could get a trilogy out of it and and I think that that could be the end of both of their careers if you, if we if they did go that far. But yeah, so it's an intriguing one. But one that I would, uh, yeah, maybe lean just towards Joshua. I think that he might pull it off because, like you said, Tony, he's got that street mentality. It's a fight. I know Joshua on a personal level, and it's a fight that he's wanted for a long time. You know, it's not a fight that he's been forced into. It's a fight that he actually wants, and that's why I give him the edge. Well, you know, I've worked both of their corners, funny enough. I worked uh, Tyson Fury's corner when he boxed John McDermott first time at the English title. So I know both their mentalities are very strong. And uh, I, I think it's an even fight. I think it can go either way. And like you say, we could see a trilogy out of these two. You know, it could be their... Obviously, it's going to be their career-defining fights, cause it, but it could also be their last fights in their careers. Great stuff there from Tony Sims. And it was an absolute pleasure to have a man who's been involved in the sport for more than 40 years in the studio. A rare appearance indeed. Next, Bob Arum, the legendary promoter from Top Rank, joined us to tell us the latest on the trilogy fight between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. Well, we're still operating on the basis that we'll we'll have a go on December 19th, and that's really based on Nevada allowing limited spectators uh, in a big football stadium uh, in December. We're optimistic that we can get it done, but again, you know, just like everybody else, we can't control the coronavirus. Uh, but I'm still looking at December 19th. Uh, if uh, if we can't do it, then uh, then we're working on uh, something where we do it uh, uh, in a different country uh, where we could get a gate uh, in like the beginning of February. Um, how many people, and what are you going to co- charge them then? How many people? How many? How big an audience do you need? In Nevada, in you know the Raiders Stadium, which you've talked about, which has a capacity of eighty thousand, doesn't it? How, how many, yeah. how many fee-paying or ticket-paying spectators do you need to get in? And are they going to have to pay over the odds for the privilege of being there? No, because again, we did the last fight uh, in the MGM Grand Arena, which has fifteen thousand seats, which are all sold out. So we're hoping. Uh, to get limited seating in this beautiful uh, football arena. It'd be the first event, non-football event, uh, in the arena on December 19th. And we could we hope for twenty to 25000 And the ticket prices would, uh, you know, as we calculated, would be the same, same as they were in February. So what's the gate you take from that then in the end? Well, we, we took $17 million, uh last time, and that aspirationally would be where we hope to come out this time. Bob, could you um, clear up the situation with this Dillian White um, meant to be uh, boxing? It's meant to be fighting um, Tyson Fury for the mandatory 
He's in a mandatory position. He's meant to be fighting Fury by this um, February of 2021. Now, if that fight doesn't go ahead in December uh, with uh, Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury, if that fight doesn't go ahead in December, what is the situation with Dillian White? Will he be next in line or will Deontay Wilder, you know, will you be able to move that fight to uh, February? Yeah, because uh, the WBC approved the, the the trilogy contract, and that provides for uh, postponements. And certainly, if you can't do it with spectators, uh, a reasonable postponement would be okay. Does does so? Yeah, I, I yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, Bob, but does the fact that Dillian White's prepared to fight behind closed doors put any pressure on at all? No because it's a different kind of fight. No. Uh, the, uh, the Wilder Fury fight in, in, in the United States is a major, major fight. Dillian White, nobody ever heard of in the United States. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I heard um, an interview with Eddie Hearn saying that um, if that fight with Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder did not go on in December, that he would be pushing the WBC hard for Dillian White to get his shot in February because he feels that that fight could go on behind closed doors and he thinks that the the pay-per-view revenue would, would by far cover those purses if the fight was to go on behind closed doors. So if the guys, for whatever reason, um, did not, or if Deontay Wilder didn't take that fight in December then he would be pushing for Dillian White for February. Well, Eddie Hearn tells you guys something different from what he tells me. But he <laughs> has to take the position. He has to take the position that, you know, advocate for Dylan White. But uh, I'm absolutely clear uh, that uh, uh, the Wilder fight would push ahead. And then we'll see. The d- and then if he wants to push Dylan White to fight the winner of that fight, and uh, to deprive Joshua of the tremendous revenue that there would come from a uh, uh, a, a fury uh, a fury uh, Joshua fight, that's on Eddie. So, so Bob, so what you're saying is, and and you know, does does if Deontay Wilder, let's say for any reason, doesn't fight Tyson Fury, does the in your mind, does the Anthony Joshua Tyson Fury fight, then trump it all? No, not really. I mean, I could see... Again, I can't talk for the WBC. I know, based on my conversations with Mauricio, that if the fight had to be postponed to the beginning of February, that fight would go on. What then he would uh, determine as far as while as far as White... Uh, uh, what's his name? White... A fight, uh, 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 he might say, no, uh, Fury, if he beats Wilder, would have to fight White, and therefore that would affect the Joshua fight. But again, you know, one step at a time. All I know exactly. is mm. that that we are, we are not in grades. Mm. Tyson Fury, top rank. Uh, uh, we uh, were given the opportunity uh, by Wilder, first for the first fight in December, which which Wilder didn't have to do, and then the contract for the second fight and the rematch, uh, he was still the champion because the first fight was a draw, and so he gave uh, Fury the opportunity to win the title. 
How do you turn your back on Wilder? You know, that would be absolutely improper. You know, Wilder's done nothing wrong other than giving Fury the opportunity to win the title. And uh, uh, so, you know, as, as people who are fair, we're not going to turn our back on, on Deontay Wilder. We just had Tony Simpson here tonight who trained Anthony Joshua in his early career. And myself, Spencer, and Tony were all saying it would be an absolute travesty, though, Bob, if we don't see Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua fight, because at least maybe twice. Because for us in Britain, and I don't know if it is in America in the same way, but it is the biggest fight that we will ever see in our lifetimes, I think, you know, because it is so enormous. We, you and I agree completely. But again, that's down the line. And we'll we'll meet it meet that situation uh, when it comes up. Uh, but uh, again, uh, uh, our goal is to do Fury and Wilder, and then Fury wins to go right to a Joshua fight, a fight plus a rematch, and uh, that's where we stand. Bob, for the I, next, I agree. I agree. It would be an absolute travesty. Mm. That, I mean, the fight people. You know, with all these mandatory, schmandatories, people are looking for for what the public wants. Yeah. And if Joshua is successful against Pulev and Fury is successful against Wilder, then everybody on both sides of the pond will look at, at uh, Fury and Joshua as the fight that they want to see, and they don't care about mandatories, whether it's Usyk on the WBO side or uh, Dylan White on the uh, WBC side, people don't care. They're, they would be outraged. They, everybody wants to see, assuming they're both successful uh, in their next fight, they want to see Fury and Joshua for the undisputed heavyweight championship, and that would be uh, I think uh, the pressure from the public, the pressure from everybody will see that fight through. I couldn't agree with you more. Bob, um, for the next hour, we're talking about women's boxing. Should it be two or three minute rounds? Should women be paid more? Can we make pay-per-view stars out of women boxers? I remember an interview I did with you some time ago where you talked to me about Mia St. John, who was a Playboy cover model. She was on the Jay Leno show, all the major shows in America. But I remember you saying to me, in spite of her being on the undercard or starting the fights of Oscar De La Hoya when he was the biggest star in America... You could not turn her into a pay-per-view star. It was too difficult. Um, what? That is, that, that is correct. What that is, is correct. What, what, I mean, is, is, has the paradigm you, shifted, Bob? You. Yeah, the paradigm has shifted. Every, you know, women boxers uh, have uh, uh, come to prominence. I think helped by by one woman who was a di- in a different sport, the MMA, and the success of. Ronda Rousey uh, for UFC has changed everybody's mind as to the value of women boxing. But there was no Ronda Rousey, unfortunately, when uh, Mia St. John's was fighting for us. Mm. Has society changed? Let me tell you the difference. There was a great movie called Million Dollar Baby with Clint Eastwood and uh, Hillary Swank, and and so Emmanuel Stewart 
who trained um, Lucia Riker, came to me and he said, look, time is right now. Let's do a big pay-per-view uh, event uh, with Lucia Riker against Christy Martin, who was the, the most prominent woman fighter at the time. And I said, what a great idea, I said. So the deal was that each was to get 250000 and the winner, a bonus of another seven fifty, making her the million-dollar woman. And I signed both, and I started doing it on pay-per-view. And I found to my horror that one month after we announced that fight, we had sold exactly 10 tickets to the fight in Las Vegas, and the pay-per-view people were telling me that we would do virtually no business on pay-per-view. And I was, of course, panicked because a lot of money was going to go down the drain. And Lucia Reichar, uh, uh had a torn Achilles tendon uh, when she was training two weeks before that fight was to happen, and it was canceled, saving me a lot of money. But at that point, I had absolute concrete proof that women boxing would not draw. I think that was then, and this is now. I mean, you look at uh, at our Congress and Senate. Say in Nevada, we are, you know each state has two U.S. senators, and both of the uh, U.S. senators in Nevada are two terrific women, and they're doing a great job, and uh, they're the best senators we've had since Harry Reid. So uh, you know. Women have made a big mark now in politics. Uh, I mean, you uh, you people w- were aware of that with uh, Margaret Thatcher, and then you had May was the the prime minister, uh, and uh, uh, Biden now is looking for a running mate, a woman, which he's going to announce next week. Uh, women boxers like Carissa Shields, like Michaela Mayer, uh, like. Uh, uh, the yeah, a, a Katie Taylor, women's yeah, Taylor, uh, that Harper woman who mm. fought on Eddie's uh, card, Terry Harper, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, mm. yeah, a lot of good women fighters, Amanda uh, Serrano, yeah, yeah, I mean yeah, oh yeah, there's, there's quality, and people now are uh, are. Uh, paying attention. I think what now, you're talking I about, Bob, say, is that society has changed as well, mm. and that's the big thing, yeah, isn't it? A hundred percent. A hundred percent correct. And and so, uh, as promoters, uh, we uh, have to be attuned to what society is paying attention to and what society wants. And I think there is a big upside in women's boxing. Uh, I think that one of the... Uh, problems with it is this two-minute round business uh, where, uh, you know, look at how many knockouts there are in men's boxing, and look how many are in the last minute of each of a round. You know, the knockouts come not in the first two minutes of a round generally, but in the last minute of a round. He's always brilliant, isn't he, Bob Arum? And fantastic stuff there. He really has seen and done it all. Well, next on the show, I caught up with Natasha Jonas, 
Uh, people believe that she should have taken away the WBC super featherweight title on Fight Camp 2. She didn't. She got a split draw. Um, here's what she had to tell me the morning after the night before. History in the making here in the Matram Garden. The first world title between two British women ever. The first world title over here since lockdown. Look at this for action here in the third. And Jonas comes back with a good right hook. Good exchange here. Both girls landing hard shots. That was a beautiful left hand down the middle from Natasha Jonas. And she's holding on here, Terry Harper. And there's the power of Jonas. And look at this. What great advert for women's boxing this is. Mark Lyson scores this contest. 95-95, we have a split draw. And Terry Harper retains her world super featherweight title. It was mightily close. It was a great battle. Let's have a rematch, man. You're smiling, Natasha. Um, and our relationship goes back to 2005, I remember, right? Wow. You're smiling, but is there not a sense that you were robbed of your moment last night? Of course. Um, I felt I was a little bit hard done to. Um, but, you know, a lot of people had wrote, written me off and, you know, said I was too old, said I was weight drained, said I was, you know, many things. I couldn't do 10 rounds. I wasn't fit. And... And I think I proved them all wrong. So that, that for me, is, is, is the positive out of it. You've got to take the positives. I can't change the decision. I can't, you know, it's, it is what it is. I can't, I can't change anything. So I just have to look for the positive and, and, and take that. Were you pleased with your performance? Because you seemed very composed throughout. You, you seemed the, the better boxer on the night in all aspects. Did you feel that during the fight? Well, I've said from the beginning since the like, and and I know Teddy took a bit of offence to it, but when I when me and Joe sat there and broke her down, there was nothing that she did that was better. Yeah, and, and I said that, and I I, I I stuck by it because the the genuinely wasn't, um, and I just think that I showed that I showed that um, you know, people are judging me by this one Obanoff loss. It was just one of them days that I had a bad loss, um, but. I think now I've proved I'm, I'm, I'm world level. What are you going to do about this? Are you going to campaign for a rematch? It was a very high profile fight, as you know, a historic fight. Amazingly, the first ever all British women's world title fight. Um, I, I was amazed by that fact. Are you going to campaign for the rematch? Yeah, I'm going to push for it. Um, I think, you know, um, Eddie was saying last night that that was definitely something that he'd be interested in doing again and he thinks the boxing public would love to do again but you know whether Terry wants to do it again and you know I think she may have some mandatories that she may need to do so we don't it's like the part the Parsoon Taylor one it might not be straight away but it definitely will be in the pipeline somewhere I'd love it to be straight away and then you know I can continue with my journey because I'm on I'm on limited time and you're also like you say it sounds like that performance has galvanised the fact that you are going to go and win a world title. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I said it since I've come back. I've come back off lockdown and I'm, you know, I'm turning back the clocks. I'm a different person. Um, I'm a different, I've got a different outlook, I have a different mindset. And I think, you know, my training camp uh, for this fight proved that and it proved that when I, when I 
I do put my best foot forward and I am that complete athlete that I, I, I'm unbeatable. What you've got now is Joe Gallagher annoyed and the, the bit between his teeth over this. And I think he probably won't stop talking about the unfairness of the judging decisions in that fight, you know? 100%. You know, Joe loves to wind people up and loves to rattle a few cages. And that's a, that's a, that's his experience in the game. And it's good to have people like that on your side because when they're with you, they're 100% behind you and they'll fight your corner in every way they can. Did you and Eddie or you and Terry talk afterwards? Did the teams talk at all afterwards last night, you know, 11 o'clock? Yeah, we had a few Sky interviews and a couple of uh, just like brief conversations. Nothing, you know, where we're signing contracts or anything. But, you know, we had good conversations about, you know, the, real, the, 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 the reality of it happening and when and where and how. And so, you know, I'm always ready. We'll just be for the call as per usual, you know. Um, this is mostly on Teddy Harper because I don't know if she'll want that fight again. Anthony Joshua came out with a very nice tweet for you both last night saying it, it wasn't just a great advert last night for women's boxing, but a great advert for boxing, your main event with, with Terry Harper. How was the experience in the bubble overall for you? Uh, the bubble itself was uh, uh, very, very different, obviously, in the hotel. There was only like part of the hotel that you was... I had access to so you know sometimes on on like you know before weigh-in days or you, you go down a couple of days early and you come walk around the city center or go to shops or just float about but you couldn't do that you, you, you know you were quarantined for 12 hours i think it was and then uh, as soon as you got your test results you could just only stay in this one part of the hotel which it took you literally a minute to walk from one end to the other so that's, that was your exercise for the day, unless you wanted to go in, in the actual boxing ring, which you had to book out. But the, the experience of being, you know, in the back garden and have the, the, the fireworks and everything, and that was brilliant. That's something I've never had before. It was like, it was, it was really special. And um, it was a, a, a great production um, from, from Matchroom and from Sky. And uh, as I say, you, you say, you know, it's part of history and uh, we are in, in, in mad times and it's, it's always going to be there and hopefully people appreciate the, the performance that we had. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, that was Natasha Jonas, and I do hope she gets either a rematch or a chance at another world title shot. Well, after speaking to Natasha Jonas, Spencer Oliver and myself spoke to Michaela Meyer, the American boxer, who is mandatory for the WBO women's title and who is gunning for all the champions in the 130-pound division right now. Take a listen to this. A while ago, when I was the number one contender trying to get a fight with Ava Wallstrom and literally woke up to articles that or notices that uh, um, Terry Harper had swooped in there and gotten the title fight with her, being ranked number 15. So right then and there, like, and I know how I know how boxing works. I know it's all business, and Eddie, you know, probably wrote a bigger check, and okay, it is what it is. But at the end of the day, I'm still the one contender in this division, and I wanted her to know that. I wanted her to know that you can buy your way to a world title, but you got to be ready for the heat because it's coming now. You're the champ. But, but are you going to fight Eva Brodnika next now? Is that what it looks like? Yeah, and the funny part of that is I woke up again to everyone tagging me in the matchroom post on Instagram that, oh, Eddie Hearn had signed Ava Brodnika. And I'll be honest, I was like, wow, okay, Eddie, that's uh, smart move, smart move. And it would definitely made it a little bit more difficult for me to get that fight because I know he was reserving her for Terry. But hours later, uh, it's announced that WBO makes me mandatory. So um, that was just like an exciting morning for me. Obviously, I've been wanting that fight. I've been going after both Terry and Ava. So... Um, for them to be mandatory, I think that I think I'm deserving of that. Is 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 COVID potentially going to get in the way of you getting over here to fight either Eva or Terry potentially for for a while, Michaela? I th- I think it might, but just just to know that it's in place. Like usually, you have to uh, have the mandatory fight within like three months, right? That's usually the rule. Mm. So that might be adjusted um, because of days. COVID, which. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so which would be normal. I mean, as long as it still happens, if you have to make it four or five months, fine. But um, I think Awen needs to come over here to America. I want her to come over here to America to fight me. Here's the thing, and Eddie probably knows this. Awen's not going to beat me in the U.K., and she's not going to beat me in America. It's no risk for him to send her over here to fight me. Zero risk. She's going to get her ass beat anyway. Like, it's not – there's no way she's going to beat me. So – and then we can discuss maybe having the Terry Harper fight in the U.K. But he needs to send Awen over here. Yeah, Eva, do, um, sorry, Michaela, do you uh, feel, though, that Eddie's trying to get this division unified to maybe move up and get a shot at Katie Taylor and try and get those big women's world title fights? Would you be willing to travel over here and would you be willing to fight someone like um, Terry Harper over in this country? Yeah, if I if I get my belt from Awa, when I get my belt from Awa, if he sends her over here, we can discuss potentially... Um, unifying over there. We can talk about that. At the end of the day, that's up to my managers um, and my team. But uh, I don't know. I still feel like I'm the A side of this fight regardless. Like I'm the one bringing attention to the fight. Um, I have the bigger following. And so I do think even though I do think I still have leverage there, we can bring it over here to America also. Um, that'll be discussed. First, first step is getting that belt from Ayla because Terry wants something to do with me until I have a belt. 
Michaela, um, final question tonight, and it's lovely to have you on the show. What did you make of the fight last night? And do, do you have any concerns about either of those women, Terry Harper or Natasha Jonas, that you saw last night? Well, my I did an interview going in with Sky Sports saying, don't look past Natasha. She's an Olympian. There's levels of this. Terry Harper has 17 amateur fights and 10, 10 pro fights. Like, that's what I've been saying all the time. Like, yeah, Eddie got her a world title fight, but now is she really ready for that competition? So I knew Jonas was going to take it to her, and I just knew she had a pressure. That's exactly what she did. I think that Jonas lost it in rounds where she backed up against the rope. She let herself, even though she was landing the better shots on the inside, she was landing shots as she was backing up. But in the judges' eyes, if you're gonna, they're going to take the belt away from the champion. Like, you can't let her back you up in, in moments. So that got her a draw instead of a win. But if she didn't let herself get back up to the ropes and kept that fight in the middle of the ring and held her ground a little more, she would have gotten the decision. Well, that's Michaela Meyer there. She does sound confident, doesn't she? Over here or over there, she's saying she's going to get the job done. Well, we carried on talking about women's boxing when guest Lou DeBella, trainer, former PR guy with the broadcast companies on boxing, star in one of the Rocky movies. He's seen and done it all himself and has been around a very long time. He was impassioned about boxing for women and he has more women on his cards than anyone else right now. I gotta be honest, I'm, I'm tired of this three-minute argument. First of all, by the way, real, real props to both those ladies last night who fought a terrific high-skill-level war. It was a great example of women's championship boxing with so much at stake domestically in the UK. The first time to, you know, you know, a fight like that took place over. It was great. It was great historically. And, and they really, really lived up to the moment. Um, but the three minute round argument, you know, it's constantly the kind of people that are criticizing the women saying, well, you don't even fight three minute rounds. Well, guess what? Every television network and streaming service on earth, every single TV and streaming executive will tell you that one of the things they prefer about MMA fights, UFC fights, two boxing matches, are that the fights are shorter. And, yeah, people can point to five-minute rounds, but the average UFC fight is three rounds. Fifteen and, minutes, and yeah. And championship fight is, 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 is five Twenty-five, rounds. yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so, I mean, I don't think anyone – Three three minute rounds versus two minute rounds is like arguing to me that women would be getting paid the same money in tennis if there were five sets in a in a uh, a championship final. And you and I know that's not the case. Um, and by the way, every neurologist on earth will tell you that by definition, fighting a two minute round is safer than fighting a three minute round. Probably would be for men also. Why would you would women? Why would they want to increase the number of rounds when you can't get platforms to give opportunities for women when the fights are shorter and television really desires shorter, more explosive, more consistent, more action-filled events? Why should women fight extra minutes in order to satisfy some critics when it makes it less attractive, attractive programming? the TV and streaming services, and makes it more unsafe for less 
money. The th- it, it, Lou, Lou, sorry, Lou, yeah. I completely yeah. agree with you. I, com- I mm. completely agree with you. I don't buy the argument three rounds. I've read the medical evidence. There is a lot of it out there about, about brain damage uh, into that third round as well, especially for women. And... My view, and I know it's a, a kind of Corinthian one and, and, and on the side of women, is they need to be paid more. We need to platform them. And if oh. you're saying that there's a better chance of them platformed on the big networks in two-minute rounds, then let's go with that because it's going to get them more money. We are on the cusp. They're, we are on the cusp of big women's fights. They're not getting big chunks of programming time right now. Let's face realities. You don't see an all-women show anymore. You don't see a fight card, for the most part, that's split evenly between men and women fights. Nowhere in the world today is there a platform just for women in boxing. That is atrocious. That is not acceptable in 2020. And when, let's stop talking about stupidity, number of rounds and other stupidity. Yeah, Lou, do you know what? I know there's been this big ongoing thing about women's boxing and should it be changed to three minutes, etc. Now, I've boxed, even as a professional, actually, in my early fights as a professional, I boxed two-minute rounds and I've boxed three-minute rounds. I've boxed a lot of two-minute rounds as an amateur as well. And i tell you what it would happen if they changed women's boxing from two minutes to three minutes is that they would actually die loot the rounds and the fights would become more less interesting because when you box over a two minute 100%. round when you box over a two minute round the pace increases like when you mm. box over a shorter distance four rounds six rounds etc so if they if they add that extra minute in that these some of these critics are saying there's not enough time in the rounds etc the the pace of the fight would change and I think actually then you know women's boxing's flying at the moment people are loving it the tempo of the fights the storylines all action the story Katie lines. Taylor Passoon and what we saw last night with Terry Harper Natasha Jonas I mean they're all action fights if they was over three minutes mark my words them fight those rounds would be diluted I, I, I couldn't agree with you more and by the way let's face reality Spence you're a you're a fighter. You know this. All fight. Garrett's not a fighter, but he's covered it forever. We all know this. Three-minute rounds. How many fights do you see a fighter take a minute of every single round off? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very rare that you see guys fighting at the same pace for three minutes around. There are exceptions, but the rule is that you don't get three consecutive minutes of action. So, the, and, and, and one of the great selling points for an MMA event is that you know you have action in the ring very little time between matches more action in the ring very little time in between max matches and a majority of the fights don't go the distance mm-hmm. and and i don't think three minute rounds are going to do anything to increase the popularity and and if if promoters and tv networks most importantly the television streaming entities if they're not saying give me more rounds of women why would you think that would help it's counterintuitive it's not even intellectually sound thinking you know if if you can't get enough slots for women on television and streaming services right now with shorter quicker fights why do you think longer more tedious fights are going to help. Lou, it's not going to help. Lou, no, I, mean, I completely agree with you, and I think Spencer's come around to that way of thinking tonight, mm-hmm. and, and and even said in the break that I, to me, before he said that to you, that he was really the muscle memory of his brain was remembering mm-hmm. the difference of two and three round um, fights. Listen, the, the people that people, two, two people, and three minute fights. Sorry, pe- yeah, people that have never boxed before, or people that may be listening, might might think, wow, what's the difference? Two minutes, three minutes. That last minute 
makes a huge difference because that last minute can be so long and that's obviously in the back of your mind so mm. you change the tempo of the fight and everything. It, 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 it is... It is huge. That minute is huge and will make a massive difference. So, yeah, come on, man. Look, look ten, ten um, two-minute rounds we're seeing in women's boxing. We're getting classic fight after fight. We're getting fight of the year contenders. Why would we want to change something? You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Exactly. Lou, can I get you on one more subject? A weird thing sure. happened last week. Frank Warren reached out to Eddie Hearn and they're going to go for a dinner and do some match-ups together. What do you make of it? I think it's long overdue, and I think it's wonderful. <laughs> but it's it's quite unusual. It does happen in boxing, but it's unusual, isn't it? No, it's unusual now. I mean, Gareth, when we first got in, when you were a young reporter, and I was young, period, and we were running around this business, people got together all the time. They did. There, mm -hmm. there, weren't, there weren't such distinct separations as, as BTE and Sky. There wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fighters crossed over from from uh, service to service and network to network, and, and fights were able to take place across people's promotional banners. It happened all the time. In recent years, particularly, like, it's even worse in the States where you have three separate roads of ESPN and Top Rank and PBC with Fox and Showtime and then DAZN. You know, you guys have that, I guess, a little bit with BTE, though. I think at the moment Sky's in a dominant position or, or a more dominant position, though BTE is not without its own stars. I think it's wonderful. I think particularly right now with travel restrictions in the immediate next 12 months, there might be some tremendous opportunities for Frank and Eddie to get together and put on matches that are really going to excite UK boxing fans. And I hope that the same thing happens on this side of the, of the pond. Well, in the final hour, Spencer and I discussed the potential link-up between Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn matching some of their cards. The, Frank Warren had come up with a list of fighters that he thought could match from each stable. And I went through them with Spencer for Spencer to reckon which fights could actually happen and also to pick some of the winners. It was fascinating. Yes or no, Spence, are these fights realistic? Frank Warren put all these fights out. Be, be totally honest with me. Are these going to happen? Anthony Joshua, Tyson Fury? Yes. Daniel Dubois and Dillian White? No. Anthony Yard and Joshua Boatze? Yes. Please. <laughs> Joe <laughs> Joyce and Derek Chisora? No. Liam Williams and Demetrius Andrade? No. Charlie Edwards and Cal Yafai? Possibly. Nathan Gorman and Dave Allen? Possibly. Hamiz Hamza Shariz, apologies, Shariz, versus Ted Cheeseman. Possibly. Archie Sharp versus Zalfa Barrett. I like that one. Yeah. And Chris Jenkins against Conor Ben. Yeah. Okay, so you've picked over half of those. Yeah. Why are you saying no to Daniel Dubois and Dillian White, Joe Joyce and Derek Chisora, Liam Williams and Demetrius Andrade? Um, I'll tell you exactly why I'm saying that. D Dillian White is managing challenger for the WBC title. Uh, Anthony and um, it's too early for sorry, Daniel Dubois Daniel to fight Dubois, Dillian White, isn't Dan it? Yeah, Daniel well. Dubois way too early. He's got his, you know, he's got his things at the moment. He's got them fights lined up with Joe Joyce. You know, if he beats Joe Joyce and he beats him in style, then 
that puts him in the mix, but still leaves him a fair way down. So they're at different stages of their career. Obviously, Anthony or Joshua Boatsy, that that's a fight that we would like to see. It's an that, amazing light heavyweight fight. That's that, the it? most mouth-watering it contest is. out of all these fights that we've mentioned. Joe Joyce, Derek Jazora. Derek Jazora, again, is in a different place. He's chasing the fight with Alexander Rusik. Joe Joyce has got his hands full anyway with um, um, Daniel Dubois. So, that, you know, realistically, them fights are 12, 18 months off. But um, some of the ones we mentioned, they're little Charlie Edwards and Kelly uh, Yafira as well. I'd like, Terrific love to fight. see that fight. Terrific. Love to see that. It's a 50-50, isn't it? And they're at the right stage of their careers. Yeah. They're both on, you know, they're on a yeah. playing level field. So, yeah, look, some fights there will be made and can be made. Do I think that them fights will happen? I do think they'll happen. I think that they, they will join forces. I think they'll amalgamate. I'm not sure how they're going to do that over different t- um, TV networks, whether they'll show them on both networks or what. I'm not sure the ins and outs of it all, but I think those we will see some of those fights. Um, when we first heard this last week, did you think... I thought it was a brilliant PR stunt by Frank Warren to begin mm. with because... Matchroom Square Garden, Fight Camp 1, had been a rip-roaring success. Yeah. I mean, I was here in the studio with you, and we saw Ted Cheeseman and Sam Eggington, Egg versus Cheese. It was a tremendous mm. event. It looked like a, the set of a Bond movie. It was something like we'd never seen before. We saw the full moon. We, you know, the, mm. the telebroadcast was phenomenal. It was so pleasurable, and it was only five fights on a card. Um, Frank Warren saw that. And he had boxing promoter Envy. And I'm not to be critical of Frank. I mean, I have great respect for him. I've been around him and worked around him for 30 years. But he saw an opportunity. And Eddie Hearn's taken the bone, if you like. He's taken the bone and he's going with it. But could this lead to an even worse fallout between the two men? Well, I... You're right in what you said about Frank Warren, by the way. Getting boxing back on the map, getting it moving again and everything is great. But you know what? It's, the atmosphere is not there in the BT studios, which is affecting some of the guys' performances. And I've been watching those shows and I've kept a close eye on them. The guys have not been boxing to the best of their ability. You listen to him, Lyndon, after, after he had a very lacklustre performance against Dex Spellman, won that on points. And and he said he said I couldn't get motivated I couldn't get up for it. The guys that are boxing Ted Cheeseman versus Sam Eggington, um, contender for fight of the year. They said the atmosphere was incredible. Like although there was no one there, you had this real buzz about you know the the the, 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 the arena looked not the arena the back garden. It was still an arena. The back garden, it was still yeah. an arena. The back it was an outdoor looked, arena. Yeah. He said so, and obviously Frank's seen that. Does Eddie need it? I don't think he does. I think Eddie's got a big enough stable to be doing it on his own. But I think that Eddie fancies a couple of those fights that are out there. But the fights that are out there don't have to be... They don't have to amalgamate the two together, the two promoters together to make those fights. Because the fights that we're talking about, like Yard versus Boatsy, will go to purse bids. Who's got the deeper pockets? That's the bottom line. It's time for that fight, though, in my view. I I I mean, in, in, in olden days, I mean 25 years ago, we might be seeing that already. Yeah. You know, and in some ways... I'd love to take pick your brains. You're you're a very astute man when it comes to styles and silhouettes moving against each other. Daniel Dubois against Dillian White at the moment. I would still find that mouth watering, okay? Mm. Because they are both very explosive punches. Um, what would happen if Daniel Dubois stepped into the ring against Dillian White at the moment? 
do you know what? That's a difficult one for you, for me to answer. And I'll tell you why, Gareth, because I'm a big, big fan of Daniel Dubois. I really do think out of the unbelievable young crop that we've got coming through of heavyweights at the moment, the best that we've been in for many of years, Daniel Dubois is at the top of the list of, of prospects coming through for me. I think he's improving at such a rapid rate. I speak to Martin Bowers on a regular basis. His trainer. Yeah, because yeah. I'm... Pick up, Jim. So, because in I'm, East London. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm so interested in, in this kid's progress. He's 20. 22 years of age and the, and the, the way that he's moving through when he beat Nathan Gorman that was a 50-50 fight the way he went through Nathan Gorman was absolutely incredible and he's just gone on from strength to strength I think Dubois could potentially be the best out of all the heavyweights that we've got in another let's say two years Great stuff there from, from Spencer um, Finally on the show we discussed um, the careers of two ultimate boxer winners Shakan Pitters and Derek the Preacher Asazi. Take a listen to the interview first of all with Shakan Pitters chilling out at home. I think time with my daughter and family is most important, especially in these times when I'm, um, you know, locking myself away and staying focused on training. It's good to just, um, you know, get away to what really matters, the family and my motivation, which is my daughter. So that's where I get empowered and it sets me up nice for another busy uh, week of training. Yeah, second, you don't... A lot of people listening to this won't, won't recognise that actually boxers are very sentimental people, very soft people at yeah. heart, aren't they? You know, the people see it as like, because it's such a, a, a gladiatorial sport and such a tough sport that, that people think that boxers are just this tough, you know, inside and out. But actually... With no feelings. That, yeah, yeah, with no yeah. feelings. But it's a very emotional sport, boxing, isn't it? Very is, man. There's, I think the problem is... Um, with a lot of the boxers, they feel there's a lot of pride and egos in the way, like where they feel they have to maintain a tough image. For me, you know, I'm very family orientated. I like doing things for my family and, and and friends and so on, and my loved ones. So this is where I find I get my strength and um, courage from. But like you say, it's a um, it's a very emotional sport. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, you have good days, you have bad days, you have low moments, just like in life, you have high moments in life, and it's exactly the same with boxing as a sport, you know, you've just got to have, keep good things around you, good people, and have the, like your family and close ones to keep you on the straight and narrow, and luckily I'm blessed to have that. One of the things people, if they haven't seen you, might not know is that, if I can call you a freak in terms of your size, <laughs> a, a light heavyweight who squeezes themselves into 12 stone 7, 175 pounds, right? Yeah. You're 6 foot 6, which is the yeah. size of the biggest heavyweights out there. Now, they yeah. don't have a division, weight division, called basketball size weight division. <laughs> but I remember meeting you for the first time, I think it was at BT Sport Tower. And yeah, I could was, yeah. not believe you looked really tall in the ring. You know, I mean, you were mm. incredible on uh, Ultimate Boxer, but I could Thank not you. believe how tall you are. How do you possibly, at the age of 31, still make that weight? Is it just genetic? <laughs> no, nah, I believe you know what it is. Um, I've always maintained a very disciplined diet. Um, I'm, even when I'm... Um, I think as a professional athlete, you should always be in some form of camp. When I say that, I mean, it's not a problem to obviously have a cheat meal, but don't overdo it. And for me, I've always had a very fast metabolism, maybe because of the training I've been doing from a very young age. Mm. From the age of six, I've always been training. I've been in the football team. I've been actively training. So um, I think it's something where my body um, is now kind of more structured in a way where it can 
you know, overcome certain temptations now where I've had it taken away from me from a young age in a way. In regards to food where I have to stay disciplined. So that's the most I can say apart from that. I've been making weight good and um, I'm blessed to just carry on be doing that, especially for this camp. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? He's the six foot six light heavyweight. I don't think I've heard that before, actually. No, I think that's, no. the, that's the tallest light heavyweight I've heard. But you're talking about um, diets there and stuff like that. So realistically, you could actually grow into a heavyweight. You could go through the, through the divisions. You know, you're, you're fighting for the British light heavyweight title against Ch- Chad Sutton. Um, yeah, yeah and it, but you, you win that. You do, you do something in that division. You could potentially move up to like a cruiserweight and heavyweight. Is it something you've ever thought about? Yeah, well, I've already had my first couple of fights was at cruiserweight. I was at um, cruiserweight, and I think it was my first three or four fights. Um, the only time I actually made light heavyweight is when I... Um, went into the ultimate boxer, you know, it's something where the opportunity arised and myself and my team assessed the situation before, yeah, why not go for it? But um I have done cruiserweight already. At six foot six it is naturally normally a heavyweight um, you know, kinda high or cruiserweight kinda high. I'm not ruling it out. As far as I can keep making light heavyweight at the moment, I'm obviously always gonna be happy to do so. But um as with age and as with time it may possibly my metabolism may slow down. I, I you know, I'm not in full control of that. But if that was to happen, then it's something where, again, my team will sit down um, and we'd uh, see if we'll go back up to cruiserweight or wherever it is. But, you know, I'm confident in any weight division. I, I do um, put myself in. I'm always going to back myself and I always believe in my skills. So I think I'll do well in any division. Shakan, you've got a great, um, very clever boxing ability. Um, you've got a unique physique. What's yeah. happened in your life that you didn't, for our listeners, that you didn't take up boxing professionally till the age of 28? Um, well, my dad was professional. Um, uh, Colin Pitters and my brothers were fighting. Um, both my brothers were boxing in the gym, so like I grew up obviously in a boxing household. I was playing football. My dad more pushed me in the direction of football, so I was playing football. I'd only go to the boxing gym to actually train. Um, you know, and just go there because I was too young to actually be in the house kind of thing. So I'd only just go there to uh, train. Um, I was at West Bromwich Albion for a good couple of years, so I played at a good level um, football. I've always wanted to do both. You know, I wanted to box um, as I was. My dad would let me spar, but he just wouldn't let me ever have a fight. So I'm like, you know, okay, it's kind of playing football. Um, I ended up getting released from West Brom, went into a few semi-pro clubs. And um, at the age of 22, I decided I've seen I've seen one of my local gyms um, in our city centre, and I decided to, uh, you know, take a look and go down there and see what it's about. But I was hesitant to go in at first. Um, another boxer came out and seen me. Then he introduced me to the coach. And at the age of 22, when my dad couldn't obviously stop me, is when I made the actual decision myself to you know, give it a try. Because the last thing I ever wanted to do is live in regret and think, what if I did actually go and do boxing or what if I never? So I just uh, put myself through it and thought, you know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a go, see how I find the amateurs. Didn't take it as serious as I did, as I do now in the pros. Um, you know, I did underachieve in the amateurs. From my, although I did win a good few things, but I did underachieve. Um, but as a professional, I'm taking it 100% serious and I'm enjoying the journey. I think um, 
it was a good decision I made. Similarly, Curtis Woodhouse, didn't he? Mm. Um, mind you, he, I don't know yeah. if you were the same as him. Curtis obviously was a, a million-pound footballer with uh, Birmingham City, I believe, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, I, I wasn't getting millions from West Brom, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, then, but then he went to Posh, didn't he, to Peterborough under Barry Fry, the, yeah. the, the, the great lunatic, mm. the Barry Fryers. But Curtis's problem was that if anyone insulted him in the fans or the opposing fans, he would ask, yeah. call them out after the match and he'd yeah, go and I've, fight them in I've the car park after. You know? I've, seen his, I've seen all his rants on Twitter. Even in boxing, he does it. Oh, I think, um, I he, think he chases yeah, trolls yeah. to their house after, as well, doesn't he? I was going to say... You do not want to upset Curtis Woodhouse on, on yeah. anybody that's listening. Do not tweet him anything offensive because he will be yeah. at your front door. Yeah, I actually watched that. That was funny, man. He was like, oh, who's this guy? And then he's like, I'm on his road. And then the guy was apologising. He, yeah. he, he was really apologising. Yeah. Yeah. I'll buy you a curry. I'll buy you a curry, I think he said. Don't worry, I'll buy you a curry. You've driven all this way. Yeah. He was only about 40 miles away. Yeah. I'm on the way. I'm 10 miles away. I'm yeah. five miles away. Stay where you are. Um, yeah. Is... is is your journey similar in that what Curtis, I remember going round to Curtis when he first turned pro yeah, and him saying, I never regretted, in spite of him earning decent money as a footballer, he said the first day he turned pro, he knew he'd make the right decision because there's mm. a distinction mm. between people that play team sports and people that do individual sports and they know they're relying on themselves. Mm. And have you found that yourself? Yeah, I've always been, um, like, I hate losing. That's one thing. Even mm-hmm. with football, I hate losing. I hate losing anything, even monopoly, anything. I hate losing any games, anything. But um, I know that my mindset is always to always improve on myself. Um, you know, even if I'm doing something good, I always look at what I could have done better um, in anything. And I just believe boxing being that individual sport where it's always about self-improvement, self-motivation. And motivation, I have always had, you know, to want to do something and be someone in life so I knew it was a good choice as well as obviously I'm fortunate to have the fact that my dad um, did start myself and my family and obviously everyone around me now my coaches have been doing a brilliant job on me and and everyone who's around in my life um, I knew with what I've got now it was the right choice and and, and a good decision to make. Second you're boxing for the British title against um, Chad um, on on August twenty second, what is the ultimate goal? Where do you want to be? In, you know, where do you see yourself going? Is British title the level you want to be at, or do you believe you can reach world honours? I do believe, without overlooking anything, I do believe I could, but um, I can reach uh, world honours. But as I always do in my career, I'm, I just take it a step at a time. I think when people start looking ahead and feeling that they're higher or above their own situation, is when you can let things slip. So at the moment. You know, everything's saying I'm fighting for the British, so that's as far as I'm looking ahead at the moment. August 22nd for the British title. You know, after that, then we may look further from there, but um, right now, I just can't afford to look any further than August 22nd, the British title. I do believe I can go go far, but I've got Britain there, obviously, as I say, August 22nd to deal with. It's incredible when you think that he's a six foot six inch tall light heavyweight basically squeezes into 12 stone seven it almost defies belief well after we spoke Shaq and Peters I had earlier caught up with Derek the preacher Asaze and he was fantastic on fighting on politics on philosophy and on great advice for life funny enough I think there was a, a period of maybe a week or two weeks where 
when it was just very much, you know, a hot topic at the time. Obviously, it was right after what happened to Floyd. And I didn't really do much talking, Gareth, because mm. I don't feel like I was in a position to give an opinion that reflects my beliefs as a Christian. Um, I feel like early on, there was a very, um, a lot of uh, internal anger, um, internal, you know, um, just being upset. And it, it, it caused me to reflect on the many various times that I had experienced racism um, and made me look at it in a different light and just made me realize that how normal um, my life had become to dealing with racism and discrimination. So that was one of them. But I felt after a while, for me, the main message was, you know, based on the whole, as a Christian, I believe that all lives should matter, okay? All lives should matter. But unfortunately, we've come to a point in the world where evidence clearly shows that a large proportion of people, being black people, due to certain things and certain events have taken place, it's clearly evident that to some people that that is not the case. Um, so I think the main thing I'm getting across is that, you know, as a Christian, I believe that God, there's no such thing as racism. God doesn't like racism because as a Christian, I believe that everyone, you know, we are all equal. You know, God created us, all of us, and loves us each the same. So if we, in our human ways, have now created some sort of class where based on the colour of your skin, one is better than the other, then that's against all what we stand for, I believe. So I think in the eyes of God, all lives um, should matter. I say the word should because right now, clearly, Gareth, it doesn't. Um, so that, that's my viewpoint. No, it's very, that, you know? no, it's Derek, it's very interesting to hear that. I knew we were going to have this, co- if, we, if we hadn't had it on yeah. air, you and I would have sat down over a coffee and had this conversation because this is the way you and I speak, isn't it? You're together anyway. Um, 100%. Um, did, you, did you also think, and I've been, I did a similar thing sitting back at home in lockdown, thinking about how many friends of colour, how many people of colour I deal with in the fight industry for 30 years, friends, uh, subjects, um, people I've I've covered in intense detail and just thought, you know, I don't remember lots or any particularly instances of racism in our sport. There may be systemic things that I don't see, but do you feel that in our fight world we're quite lucky in that respect or, or am I, am I off the mark? Um, oh. <laughs> it depends on which way you look at Cause if I'm being honest, um, like for instance, I, I, I personally, I'm, I'm of the notion that, you know, during this whole thing, what I've said explain to a lot of some people I know, like, um, is that you can't, it's not enough just to not, to discount yourself out and say, well, I'm not racist. Well, it's all right if you're not racist, but you also have to be anti-racist. Mm. Because if you're not racist yourself, but you're not against racism, what you're basically saying is that, well, as long as I'm not racist, that's the, the hill that I sit on. I'm cool. But if my friend who is black or Asian or experienced racism, then you're basically saying that you don't care about them. But as long as you're not racist to anyone, that's fine. I, I, I disagree. You either 
you have to hate racism yourself and be anti-racist. Now, in terms of the sport, like boxing, like you said, is an amazing sport. I've met loads of people through this sport, but throughout, you know, lockdown, especially on social media, I began to notice that, you know, there, not that there is a lot of racism overtly happening within the sport of boxing, but there is a lot of covert racism. That's, you know, uh, I'd say not just systematic, but I'd say undisclosed because seeing the viewpoints of some very prominent figures in the boxing industry, some that I've had to disconnect myself from on social media and stuff, um, it's a bit disappointing, but not surprising. So I think it's one thing to have, you know, systematic racism. There's another thing for many people within the industry to have racist views or beliefs. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I would say that in the UK, we have an issue because a lot of the racism is not as overt as we see in other parts of the world, like America. America. So I don't think that sort of kind of, um, a lot of the racism within the UK is, 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 you know, very covert. It's very disclosed, it's systematic, do you know what I mean? So I would say that there isn't any overt racism within boxing. Um, I would say there are a lot of covert racism views within a small minority of people within the industry. Um, not the whole industry, but that's just based on my experience. Everyone is different. But even through this period, I've just noticed how certain people who I've met within the boxing industry have responded to this, you know, the Black Lives Matter case. And that's sort of kind of, yeah, made that deep way. Der- Derek, the, the, the thing is, when you and I get talking, we normally need an hour. Um, we, we've covered <laughs> we've covered a couple of points there. Look, l- l- I mean, yeah. thank you so much for for being political, spiritual, emotional, all those things which you are. Um, just to remind people that this is a fighter we're talking to as well as a preacher, yeah, the winner of the Ultimate Boxer Three, a brilliant character. Um, look, I just want to ask you finally tonight, and I do want to get you in the studio, as you know, at some point in the near, near future. When are you going to be up next? Um, hopefully as soon as possible. I've been in the gym for the past two months now, Gareth. I'm just I'm raring to go. But of course, I understand that, you know, during this period, you know, nothing set in stone. Obviously, with the pandemic and lockdown, of course, you know, um, everyone's health is on the highest level of importance. Mm. So um, I'm raring to go. But at the same time, Gareth, um, I understand why everything's sort of kind of been affected. We have to remember, I know a lot of people that have been affected by COVID. I have members, I mean, friends, I've lost family members to um, COVID-19. So I'm not going to sit here and say, ah, oh, um, I, I want to get back in the ring because I feel like it's a bit insensitive, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that I'm raring to go, but I understand why, um, you know, the lockdown has happened and obviously why we just have to be patient. So... Um, I'm just keeping my, my eyes above the water, things ticking over, and as soon as the phone rings, we're good to go. So hopefully that's sooner than later. Um, but I'm in a place now where I'm just I'm, I'm trying to be as patient as possible. Great stuff there from Derek Asaze, who really has become one of my favourite fighters around, certainly one of the great young fighters coming up in the sport. Well, that's just about it for this week. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back on TalkSport with a live show and our next podcast. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.